Welcome one and all. I am honored to be able to connect with you today and really to present the underlying discoveries that I have unearthed as a result of really 12 uh, wonderful years of focused research on figuring out what in the world is Parkinson's disease all about and what can people do to reverse those symptoms. I've been a researcher for my entire life. I've worked in university settings as a tenured uh, professor for many, many years. And I have to announce that I figured I wasn't making a whole lot of contribution to the world at large, although I was very successful and published a great deal and was a tenured full professor. Uh, so I quit and decided I would focus my research program on what I figured was going to be the most perplexing problem I could imagine, a problem that had affected my own family system profoundly. My mother was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Uh, she died of a stroke. Uh, she was in a coma for two months. It was actually horrible. The coma was actually induced by her uh, taking lots and lots of prescription medications. Now, that wasn't just for Parkinson's. She was going to a number of different medical professionals, but she basically became addicted to some painkillers, and uh, she went into a coma and never came out. And I thought at the time, there's got to be an uh, alternative approach uh, when a person is beginning to confront neurological challenges. And I also had an uncle who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He took the medicines. He knew I was working on this, but Gordon uh, decided that he really just wanted to do what the uh, uh, the medical professionals advised, and so he took the standard uh, medicine regimens. And um, Gordon lived for about 12 or 15 years. Quality of life deteriorated little by little over those years, and then he died about six years ago. He donated his body to the Harvard Medical School. Gordon was a wonderful, marvelous man, a mentor to me for many years. He figured that one thing he could contribute to the world was uh, maybe they can take his body and figure out a little bit more about this thing called Parkinson's disease. So off his body went to Harvard Medical School. I didn't hear a thing back from my Aunt Betty for a whole year. And, of course, since this was the focus of my research program, I gave my Aunt Betty a call and said, what's up? What in the world happened to the autopsy? And she said, oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. I should have called you much earlier. They returned his body, said they couldn't use it. I said, what? <laughs> That's crazy. He, he wanted something to happen with this. And she said, no. They said it, it, that his situation had nothing to do with Parkinson's disease. They said that he actually had, hold on to your seat, hepatitis C. And I thought, oh, my goodness, hepatitis C. I couldn't imagine that that might be something that would have created the symptoms that he actually experienced. So there are, as I want to present here today, 10 sequences to reversing the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. I want to make a pass through all of those symptoms. Second, I want to introduce to you briefly the one and only course 
Jumpstart to Recovery that I'm offering in 2016, just so you know about the course. We only have seats for 20 people. Quite a few of those are already filled up. It's an intensive course where I support each person's ability to identify not only what is causing their symptoms on their own, so we have ways for you to be able to examine what your body is telling you, and once you know that, figure out therapies that can address what is causing the imbalances in your body. So it's called Jumpstart to Recovery. There are tons of lectures up on the Internet that you access, but we have eight sessions, intensive sessions, and so I'll, I'll briefly talk about the course. And then I've got some responses to questions that have been submitted. And I have to say at the outset, these are wonderful questions. I really enjoyed working on preparing responses last evening and this morning to all of the questions that were actually submitted. Now, one of the questions is, well, wait a minute, what is Parkinson's recovery? I know many of you have been following me now for a decade, and some of you haven't. This is kind of new and novel to you. Well, there I am with my lovely wife, Deborah. We're up in Alaska when we took the uh, cruise to Alaska, the Parkinson's recovery cruise to Alaska. We had a number of individuals who joined us on the cruise. The mission of Parkinson's recovery is to discover natural methods that help individuals reverse whatever symptoms that might be associated with their diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So I am a doctor, but that means I'm a Ph.D. I am not a medical doctor. Anything you might hear discussed today in any way from me is simply from a research perspective. And you certainly, if you want to take action, should check with a licensed medical hair care professional to make sure that they would agree that that would be a reasonable and a smart course of action to take. So you hear, uh, especially in these live exchanges or even in my course, many people call me doctor. I prefer to be called Robert, <laughs> but but that doesn't mean I'm a medical doctor. I am not. I'm not a naturopath doctor. I am a researcher, a Ph.D. type. So the passion that I have in Parkinson's recovery is to transform beliefs about Parkinson's disease. And I really do mean that. It's very clear when I started that when you went out onto the Internet, I don't have symptoms of Parkinson's myself personally, but I got very, very depressed. Every, it seemed, website talked about words that were so hurtful to my psychic words like, oh, Parkinson's is, quote, degenerative. And when I would hear that word, I would think, that's not true. What a horrible word to use. Or another word, it's stuck in the thought form templates of many people who have this diagnosis is, oh, well, gosh, it's progressive. Now, when I use the word progressive, I'm not talking about it's getting better the symptoms are improving. Rather, the word progressive has this connotation that it's going to continuously get worse. So some of the language that people actually use when they discuss their situation is, well, I'm going to slow the progression down. In other words, they bought into the template. They believe that it's inevitable that they're going to get worse. And so I always try to, and I don't usually have permission to do this, but I usually overstep my bounds, and I'll, I'll call that out to the person's attention, and I'll say, wait a minute, you just said you believe you're going to get worse. Now, if you believe you're going to get worse, 
You will get worse. Thought forms are the most powerful force on the universe. If we believe something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, it may not happen immediately, but it will happen. So when we're holding these thoughts in our language and in our subconscious and in our conscious, that in fact we've got a situation, there's really nothing we can do to stop it from getting worse. Okay, maybe we can do a little bit to feel just a tiny bit better, but the fact is the die is cast. We're going to be in a nursing home in five or six years. We're going to be in a wheelchair, etc., etc. Now, all of that language, in my opinion, is hogwash. It's not true. And that has been the passion that has driven my work here for the last 12 years to document person after person who has stories about what they've done to reverse whatever symptoms they might have experienced that are associated with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So as I see it, you're joined in here to the program today. You are a part now of this emerging community of individuals. So all of a sudden realize, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not true out there. It's not degenerative. The fact is that there are solutions. The fact is that there are factors that are causing this. And so it just simply means that you have to set a course of action to figure out what's causing it and then to figure out the therapies that will address it. So I figure if I get a critical enough body of people that realize that it's true you can reverse Parkinson's symptoms, that it will happen that all of a sudden the template will go topsy-turvy and people will realize, whoa, I wonder what I can do to actually reverse the symptoms. Now, I thought I would be there a little quicker, <laughs> I have to tell you. I thought I would accomplish this uh, uh, before today. Uh, I haven't. Uh, if you go out on the Internet, it's still a depressing experience. But I'm not giving up. <laughs> it's my one psychological trait that I don't ever seem to be able to give up. Now, one of the kinds of things I just learned in giving these kinds of presentations is I may be able to actually show a video. But let me say at the outset, if you get disconnected from me or if I suddenly go silent, I'll connect back in here to the program. So hang tight. Uh, if something happens with the technology, we'll be able to come back in here in just a minute.
by Uncle Gordon Ward, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and treated with medications for this particular condition for 15 to 20 years before he actually died several years ago. Gordon donated his body to the Harvard Medical School with the intent that by digging in to see what happened to his body, perhaps the medical researchers would learn something about the causes of these particular symptoms. I waited a year, and finally my aunt told me the story. My question, what in the world happened to the autopsy on Gordon's body? And the answer was, oh, they basically sent the body back. Uh, they said that after examination, he did not have Parkinson's disease. He actually had hepatitis C. Looking back at the stories from both of my relatives, they had been taking medications that it sounded like really were not in their best and highest good. I decided that I would focus my research program on figuring out the causes of these neurological challenges and the therapies that are helping individuals reverse those symptoms. To connect with this community of amazing individuals across the globe who are figuring out ways to reverse their own Parkinson's symptoms, click on the link below this video and be sure to sign up for the free Parkinson's Recovery newsletter. You'll get announcements about our amazing radio shows and Sunday Connections programs and other discoveries that are emerging week by week. Thank you for joining me. I'm Robert Rogers, the founder of Parkinson's Recovery. I thought instead of just hearing me, you might, you might like to be able to see me. So that was just a short preview of the founding of Parkinson's Recovery, and a reminder that uh, if you have friends that would like to be able to connect into our many free uh, programs and resources, uh, be sure to have them sign up for the free newsletter where I give announcements of all the guests, all the programs, all the radio shows that we're actually presenting. So what's the first secret to recovery? Well, the first secret you might have already guessed. The first secret is I'm suggesting that you cast off any kind of an identification or affiliation with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. The most frequent question really I got is, well, what's the probability that if I use therapy and then they'll fill in a blank with whatever that therapy might be, will reduce my symptoms? And I get this question probably every other day in emails or over the phone. Now, as it turns out, there's no answer uh, to this question, and I know people get frustrated because I, I don't have an answer for them. The reality is that if you look at any of the dozens and dozens of therapies that people are embracing to get uh, help in reversing their Parkinson's symptoms, and if you average out the effectiveness of each of those therapies, the actual result. E e quantitatively speaking, speaking as a researcher is, you're going to see an average improvement of anywhere from 10 to 15 percent on average. Now, that means that some people, if they use therapy X, are going to see a wonderful return. Other people, they don't see flip. It doesn't seem to do anything for them. So when you average all of those results out, what you find is, well, there is some degree of improvement but it's not it is so much to write home to mom about. So the reality is you have to say, okay, 
what's really going on here. And, of course, the bottom line is that Parkinson's disease diagnosis is what most medical care professionals will label as a, quote, garbage can diagnosis. And so that simply means there's no definitive way to say that somebody has, quote, Parkinson's disease. Now, there clearly are people who have a degradation in the ability of their body to produce dopamine in their substantia negra. There's no question about that. But I suspect that the proportion of people who have that challenge is relatively small. After about 12 years of researching this, my estimate is anywhere from 15 to 20 percent, and that might even be a bit generous. So I suspect that the real issues that people confront that are causing their symptoms really aren't dopamine-related. Now, the wonderful Muhammad Ali was very clear to me in watching a documentary about his life that he clearly had issues with substantia nigra. It's no doubt to me that uh, he had Parkinson's uh, disease, and that was a correct diagnosis. But as it turns out, my sense is that lots and lots of people uh, really uh, do not have an issue with dopamine. So you're probably thinking, ah, well, okay, I suppose that's a possibility. I've heard of some other factors like toxins that uh, might be at play here. I wonder what else he's really talking about. Well, we really discovered this when we were doing a study about 12 years ago in Portland with a group of research volunteers. There were 12 individuals, and there were uh, three uh, healthcare pra- practitioners who were doing cranial sacral treatments and energy healings on the subjects. And so we wanted to see, okay, to what extent will you see an improvement if every other week a person gets just 20 minutes of treatment? Well, the result was, no surprise, about 12% improvement. Great. Variation was huge. Some people looked like they got well, and other people didn't look like they saw much difference. And what we realized in these very intensive interviews with individuals is that there are many, many different factors that the people themselves could report that were responsible for the symptoms that they actually experienced. And so uh, in subsequent research, what I discovered was, well, my goodness gracious, that's exactly right. There are many, many different factors, and they're multifaceted. So usually you don't have just one factor that is present. There are usually multiple factors that are at play side by side. So it's anything but a simplistic kind of a issue. I must say to everyone, when I started my research program, this is not where I thought all of this was leading. What I really thought was, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out the cause, or maybe, okay, there's a couple of causes of these symptoms, and then I'm going to find a therapy, okay, or maybe several therapies that a person can embrace that will reverse these symptoms. I really thought that's where I was headed. And as it turns out, that's not what happened. So what are possible causes? Again, hold on to your seat. Uh, We've got documentation of literally eating GMO foods, people who all of a sudden, through some diagnostic work using some very interesting optional approaches, discovered that they were very much reacting to some wheat that was genetically modified having some very serious problems with neurological mobility and also uh, vocal issues. 
And so how did they solve this? Well, they said, okay, let me just stop eating wheat and genetically modified wheat for two weeks. After two weeks, guess what? Symptoms were resolved. Candida, which is a yeast infection. This one, I have to say, surprised me. I interviewed Lydia Epp. I found her uh, about eight years ago, and she's a, a, a researcher type. She had neurological challenges and symptoms that were diagnosed as Parkinson's disease, and Lydia figured out herself that her problem turned out to be a candida overgrowth. Now, everybody has candida in their digestive system, so it's not as if you want to get rid of all of it. The problem is that there's way too much. That stuff tends to multiply and grow. It doesn't just stay in your digestive system. It leaks out into the organs and creates havoc in the body. So her problem was candida. She went through a very serious and strict candida diet, and after uh, several months, her symptoms also resolved. Now, another issue that I really identified pretty early on in my research is an underlying factor that is causing the symptoms is trauma. That really lies at the foundation of much of what's going on. So trauma in all sorts of different forms. Trauma that is experienced during childhood. It could be physical abuse. It could be emotional abuse. It could be mental abuse, but not just childhood. It can be trauma as a result of accidents, trauma that is a result of having job experiences, working for a boss that was horrible. It can be trauma that is a result of uh, untimely death of family members. Traumas in many different forms can have a profound impact on the symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease. And hold on to your seats, too. It's also the case that traumas that were experienced by our ancestors can also affect our own neurological system. So traumas in the sense of our ancestors that were, for example, imprisoned illegally and unfairly, ancestors who were murdered, ancestors who experienced untoward suffering for one reason or another. Now, what happens, and this is unconscious, is people can take on that pain. They can take on that suffering out of love. And the surprise of all of, all of taking on this suffering is oftentimes, and I know this is hard to believe, people will actually take on trauma from ancestors they never even met, and even they didn't know existed. So traumas that we personally experience have the most direct impact, but it can be traumas that go back into our family system. Now, the next factor is dehydration. I talked and interviewed thousands of people here over the last 12 years, and I have to report to you that the interesting conversation I've had with a number of people is the following. Um, person will say, well, Boy, I've gone to doctor after doctor, taken medicine after medicine, and I really couldn't figure out how. I just feel absolutely horrible. No energy. Neurological system is going haywire. And finally, they tell me, I did figure out the solution. I realized I wasn't drinking enough water. <laughs> so they'll say, you know what? I started drinking more water. I made it a habit to you know, drink a glass every hour, and I can't begin to tell you how much better I feel.
So dehydration can be a factor. If toxins are an issue, those toxins get embedded in the cells. Now, just think about it. If the cell doesn't have enough liquid, all in the world is that toxic substance, that toxic residue, ever going to get out of the cell wall. It's not. And, of course, we've got billions of cells. So you have to be better hydrated if you want your body to function the way it needs to function. A compromised immune system. Now, that is a, kind of a complicated way of saying you've got bacterial infections of all types in your body, and because your immune system is compromised, your body is not able or equipped to be able to address that. Now, some of you might have heard of low-dose naltrexone, which is advocated by some individuals with Parkinson's with great enthusiasm because it's had such a profound improvement on their own symptoms. They take low-dose naltrexone. It's a slow-working kind of a thing. Low-dose naltrexone is uh, something that tricks the body. It literally is kind of a, a tricking kind of a medicine uh, to increase and bolster the natural immune system. So when that happens, the body is able to go after some of the infections and, and bacterial problems and viral problems and heal those, and then those are not causing the neurological problems. And again, you see below, it's not just um, viral infections. It can be all sorts of bacterial infections as well as viruses. Okay, that's my first slide. You're probably thinking, whew, well, that's, that's quite a lot, uh, but that's got to be all. Well, nope, <laughs> we've just begun, unfortunately. What else might be factors that can compromise the neurological system? Well, toxins are at the top of this slide because the research is compelling. Toxins clearly whack out the neurological pathways. There's no question about it. And there are many different types of toxins that have been clearly documented. Roundup is one of them at the top of the list. Agent Orange in Vietnam that was used to spray the soldiers and the local citizens. People today are actually able to uh, get some compensation from the Veterans Administration because that research was compelling. Now, they held their feet for years and years and years, but over the last five years, they finally acceded that, yes, the research is compelling. People have these neurological symptoms that, again, are, are typically diagnosed as Parkinson's disease because they were exposed to Agent Orange. So the number of toxins is very long, very large, very extensive. It's a toxic world. Um, it could be any, any form, any type at all. Next possibility, blocked jugular vein. That's right. Now, the jugular vein, there are two veins that go up each side of the neck, and they bring the blood from the body. The heart pumps it up, up into the brain. And so that can be obstructed by calcium deposits. And so... Uh, several uh, people uh, have discovered uh, and, and insisted that their doctor uh, do a little test, and when they found it was blocked, they did a little uh, minor surgery to clear out that uh, jugular vein, and all of a sudden more blood was flowing to the brain, and boy, did their symptoms improve. The next factor is stress. So lots of people are under incredible stress. When I'm under stress, I don't really know it. I have to say I feel like I cope with it, but the fact is it has a profound influence on me. So what, without exception, and this is a, a large statement to make, 
Of the thousands of people I've interviewed, I'll oftentimes ask the question, do you notice a connection between your symptoms when you are stressed and when you are not? In other words, when you're stressed, do the symptoms get worse? I've not yet had one person who said, well, no, I, I don't notice any difference. Everyone will report, oh, yeah, when I've got stress, the symptoms are just off the charts. So being able to address issues with stress obviously will have a direct impact on being able to find relief from your symptoms. Now, I've already had a short discussion of entanglements in families. Those are situations where we take on the pain and suffering from a mother, a father, an uncle, a grandfather out of love. And as mentioned, it can be that we take on that suffering unconsciously from an ancestor we never even really knew. It's particularly problematic for children. Uh, the reason I got so interested in this as an issue is there are so many children that uh, tend to have these awful diseases at a very early age. Well, it may be that the actual cause of those issues is unconscious and they are energetically taking on some kind of pain and suffering from an ancestor they never actually knew. Physical injury, injury, injuries, that's obvious as a factor. Muhammad Ali is a very good example of that. Negative thought forms. That's right. If you think something bad is going to happen, it happens. If you think something good is going to happen, it happens. If you believe Parkinson's is degenerative, well, it's going to get worse. And if you believe that recovery is happening now, recovery is indeed happening now. Now, it doesn't mean that you're feeling better and better every day. Sometimes for the body to heal, you will feel worse. The next one may be a bit of a surprise to you. So unconsciously, some people don't actually uh, succeed in getting better because they're getting something out of the condition or the disease. Now, I know that sounds strange. Why would anybody want to be sick? Why would anyone want to feel lousy? But if you'll sink in to your inner conscious and ask that question to yourself, you may be able to identify a reason why you may be getting something out of the disease. And I'll give you a very simple answer. It may be that you performed a job for many, many years that you detested, that was not fulfilling your heart's desire. So you went to work, you made money, you supported your family and your children and your grandchildren. You got some degree of satisfaction because you were able to really uh, do something for so many other loved ones. But the fact is that when you were at work, you were totally and absolutely miserable. Okay, well, how do you get out of having to do that every day? Well, one thing is to say, well, I quit, but if everybody is depending on you, you haven't been able to do that. So in some cases, well, an exit strategy is to all of a sudden, well, I can't really continue my job. I have to quit. And, of course, other people in the family system will pick up the responsibility. And finally, you can not only exit that job, but maybe even find something that you love to do. Now, another reason that winds up being a barrier to recovery is something that I've discovered in interviewing psychologists. Uh, psychologists who specialize in working with families that have neurological conditions. Now, what the psychologists tell me is, well, the person who has Parkinson's is really dedicated and focused on figuring out how to reverse their symptoms. But the family member, the spouse or the son or the daughter or whoever, doesn't 
actually want them to get better. Now, you'd say to yourself, but but wait a minute. Why would a spouse or why would a daughter or a son not want their loved one to get better? Well, again, these are not conscious kind of dynamics. They're unconscious. We're talking about psychologists who kind of can figure out the underlying dynamics of what's going on. And as it turns out, what might a family member get out of the fact that, let's say, their spouse is sick? Well, one obvious explanation is it's a husband who all of a sudden retired from their job. The husband doesn't have anything to do, or they can't think of anything to do. So what's their job? Well, they get something out of taking care of their wife or their spouse. It gives them some satisfaction to be their caretaker. Again, there are lots of different possible explanations of what might be at play here. I've just given you several. I would invite you, though, to just, just, just think about, okay, think about your family members. Are there people there that are getting something out of the fact that you're sick? And it's important to be able to acknowledge that and discuss that with that family member. There are obviously other ways that they can get what it is that they need out of, out of uh, their own lives without you having to be sick. Now, another factor that a lot of people discount, and I continue to emphasize this with people, is the continual and the continuous exposure to toxic substances. A lot of people are convinced that, yeah, toxins can be a factor in their ability to recover, but wait a minute. Um, fact is that that was 20 years ago when I was a photographer and I had my hands in the solutions. Well, not really. Of course, that's a factor, and that's toxins, substances probably is, are in your body. But one of the reasons the body is unable to get rid of the toxins that are in the body is because you are being exposed to more and more toxins today. Toxins in food, toxins in the water, like chlorine, toxins that are in the laundry soap or the actual shampoo or the dishwasher soap or what you use to clean your carpet. Uh, so the fact is that if you have neurological challenges, one of the best things you can do is to look at all the products that you routinely use, maybe hair dye. Look at the listing of the ingredients. If there's anything there that has a long, difficult, chemical-sounding name, good chance, 99% it's a toxin, throw it away and find some other substance to use that will meet that same need. And then a final possibility, and this is actually not an inclusive list, is electromagnetic pollution. Now, it's not true for everyone, but if you're keeping your cell phone close to your body, that's not very smart. Uh, the more you can reduce electromagnetic pollution, the fewer the problems you will have with your neurological uh, system. Electromagnetic pollution is a serious problem today. Some healthcare professionals I have interviewed say it is the health crisis of this century. So it's great that we have cell phones that we can use or smartphones that we can use when we're out at the park taking a wonderful walk or in the woods. That's wonderful. But the fact is that that exposure may be whacking out your neurological system. What's the second secret to recovery? Okay, second secret is, have you been waiting for a cure? Well, wouldn't that be wonderful? I know 
the word cure is used quite a bit out there for cancer and other kinds of diseases. Well, I have to say I believe uh, from, again, this is 10 years of researching <laughs> this particular condition, I think you're waiting for Godot. Now, some of you may not have heard of Godot. This was an absurdist play by Samuel Beckett. Two characters, and their names were Vladimir and Estragon, waited endlessly and in vain for the arrival of someone named Godot. Now, Godot's absence, as well as numerous other aspects of the play, have led to many interpretations uh, since its actual appearance. When I read the play, I kept, I too, I kept waiting for Godot. I mean, isn't that what it's about? Isn't that why this play is interesting? So when I got to the end, I felt a profound degree of disappointment. Well, wait a minute. Why did I spend all this time reading this stupid play when he didn't ever show up? But the fact is, I think it's a, a nice analogy to people who are waiting for a, quote, cure. So let me also say that do you really, if that were possible, do you really want to be cured? Concrete is cured. Do you want all of your muscles and your tissues in your body to harden? I don't think so. Bacon is cured. <laughs> do, do you want to be like bacon, where it's kind of put up on a shelf for a year or two, and that also gets pretty hardened and salty? I think that what you really want is for your body to continue talking with you, having a conversation with you, letting you know what's out of balance. Now, you're experiencing symptoms every day that are a little bit different. Okay, your body is giving you information. Your body is giving you some messages about what's going on. So if those messages are turned off, how do you know what you might need to do in order to address those balances? You're not going to know. So I think the fact is that no one likes to experience symptoms of any kind. I, like you, want the symptoms to be gone. I hate having a situation where I'm feeling lousy. I want it to be over with. But the other truth is that my body is telling me that there's something out of balance and there's probably some support that I need to give to my body that I'm not giving it right now. So I need to make some changes in the habits my habits of living each and every day. So I know that's uh, what a lot of people are doing. They'll read on the Internet, well, scientist A or B or C. Well, they've got, they've got a great discovery. They found the, uh, the cause of, quote, Parkinson's disease. Now, if you'll go back to what I'm saying are the many, many different factors that are influencing the condition, you can see why I'm saying, but wait a minute, there's so many factors that address these symptoms well, what are you talking about in terms of a cure? To cure, you would have to have a single factor. But it's not as simple as that. The fact is that while each of the factors that I've already discussed may, in fact, be contributing to your symptoms, chances are there's not just one of those factors at play, but a combination of those factors. And so all of that has to be addressed and healed before the symptoms will ultimately resolve. What's the third secret to recovery? Well, it's kind of an interesting one for me. In my judgment, in my view, a lot of people feel as though, well, it's up to you to fix your body. In other words, because you have symptoms, uh, your body's flawed. It's not working the way it should. 
well, let me remind you, you're still alive, and, and 99% of the people I talk with are fully cognitively uh, clear, coherent. Uh, they're living lives that are, are perhaps not as full as they would like, but they are getting on with their life. Now, I think, and my position is, your body, my body, they are already working perfectly. Yes, you're experiencing symptoms. Yes, you're feeling lousy for lots of different reasons. But the fact is that to acknowledge your body is working perfectly is a huge step towards your ultimate healing. So let me just give you a little analogy so I hopefully can explain the importance of this. Just imagine that your body is your employee. You're the boss. Your body is the employee. And it's your job to manage your employee, that is, manage your body. So what are you really saying to your employee or, again, your body? You're saying you are doing a lousy job. Look, I'm, I'm going to fire you. There are obviously functions you cannot perform. You don't know how to do them. I'm going to get rid of you if you don't continue to do what it is that you're supposed to do. So, so okay, uh, I've given you ten responsibilities. I'm taking three of those responsibilities away. I'm going I'm to do those. You're obviously too incompetent. You do the rest, and if you can't do those, we'll see what the next step is. In other words, that's what a boss will do to an employee that they're treating pretty poorly. So the fact is that your body is actually the boss. You're not the boss. Your body is the boss. Your body has the wisdom to heal and adjust what is necessary. Not you and not any health care provider, not me. I don't care who it is. Your body's the one that knows how to heal. So when you believe you have to fix or repair your body, you dig yourself into the same dark and dusty and damp hole of negative energy, which will ensure that you will remain ill. So when symptoms emerge, instead of saying suppress these symptoms, get rid of these symptoms, another approach is to say, I thank you, my body. You are a sacred vessel to me. I honor you for all that you are giving in to me and telling me. I am listening now. What is it that you're trying to tell me? What's out of balance here? What changes in how I am living my life do I need to make in order to help you come back into balance? In other words, treat your employee, in my analogy, with a bit of compassion and tenderness. It will make a huge difference. So remember, the factors that cause the symptoms are multifaceted. There's not usually just one factor. There's usually not just one, for example, exposure to mercury that's at play. Chances are mercury may be one factor. It may be a blocked jugular vein. It may be candida. They're usually a combination of factors. So it's a question of supporting your body's ability to come back into balance. That is the key to recovery. The fifth secret, and many of you, I think, have finally acknowledged this. I believe I was the first person 12 years ago to begin talking about this. Trauma and stress play a central role in sustaining the symptoms. So being able to acknowledge the sources of whatever traumas you might have experienced 
is a key to being able to recover from whatever it is that you're experiencing symptomatically. Stress and symptoms are correlated very, very strongly. Sixth secret. All right. Here it is, folks, and I got this in my uh, Seven Secrets uh, to Healing book. It really is about uh, healing all kinds of conditions. I think that the best strategy is instead of immediately trying to put stuff into your body is to make a pause in your treatment program and to say, all right, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's probably some bad stuff in my body right now. There's probably some bacterial infections. There's probably some toxins. I need to bolster my immune system so that I can get the bad stuff out instead of beginning to put more and more supposed good stuff in. When you're putting more, for example, supplements into their into your body and the bad stuff is still there, your body is really overwhelmed. Uh, I've talked to a number of individuals, and they gave me a long list of supplements that they take, and I look at the list and I think, wow, that's pretty impressive. Those are a lot of the supplements that we know have a profound impact on bolstering the ability of people with Parkinson's to reverse those symptoms. And yet the fact is, that they'll tell me, well, I know I've been taking them for a year, but I haven't noticed any difference. Well, it may be that they're actually just overloading their body. Their body can't process any of those supplements. Their digestive system is compromised, and basically they are spending a lot of money and putting all of those supplements literally down the toilet. So I think the better strategy is to realize, okay, let me support my body's ability to heal so a lot of people have this idea that, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got these toxins, and so I've got to figure out some kind of trick so that I can make the body get rid of that toxin. The body knows how to get rid of manganese and iron and mercury and staph and strep and candida. It knows how to do all that stuff, but it gets too overwhelmed. It just can't process all of that. And then when you add additional supplements, the body says, well, Sorry, but my processing capacity is full. In other words, think of that as a computer. I only have so much processing capacity. I can't handle that, so let me get rid of that. So what's going out of your body is not actually the bad stuff. It's the good stuff. The seventh secret to recovery. Now, this one is going to be probably novel to many of you. What happens in lives is that we are exposed, and the word I want to use is dark energy. When uh, I'm walking in downtown Olympia, Washington, there's a whole section of bars where people drink. Now, I, and I have nothing against people who enjoy drinks, but I can tell you that there is some very dark and nasty energy in these bars. Now, you can call them uh, strange beings or dark energy. I don't know what the name is, and I don't know exactly where all this comes from, but if you walk into those kinds of bars, you can certainly feel it. There's a, uh, an incredible heaviness. So when we are also exposed to insults, to traumatic situations, let's say we're driving down and somebody almost hits us or attacks us or gives us the finger or says some kind of nasty word and, and threatens our livelihood, well, those are pretty serious assaults. And so what happens is, uh, our our whole the integrity of our energy field is compromised. 
So it's important to clear your energy field of all of these dark energies. The other thing that happens that a lot of people are not aware of is because of especially all of this electromagnetic exposure, all of our little electrons in our body and our energy field begins to spin counterclockwise. So you have to learn how to reverse that. It's pretty easy to do. It only takes about a minute. So it's not a big kind of a challenge. But when your field is running counterclockwise, you're going to feel pretty lousy. You're going to feel out of sorts, worried, anxious. It's going to be a strange kind of a feeling. Some people are in spin pretty much permanently. And so you need to learn how to recognize that's an issue and then how to basically reverse the problem so that the spin is clockwise rather than counterclockwise. Uh, when you're when you're feeling that kind of strange disconnection and anxiety and disarray, there's a lack of focus, uh, lack of interest, lack of motivation, uh, depression. Uh, it's difficult to be able to know what to do. And so the key, the secret here is to realize, well, this is not a question of taking medicines or going to see healthcare pra practitioners. It's a question of acknowledging your field is basically not only in span, but you probably have some very dark energy. So you need to clear the dark energy and to basically get the spin in the right direction. The eighth secret to uh, recovery is one that I referred to just a little bit earlier. Remove continuing exposure to toxins. Now, a lot of people don't bother to do that. There's a, in my very first uh, experience, uh, as a researcher in Parkinson's, it was 12 years ago. Uh, I had not uh, actually created Parkinson's recovery yet, but I had a, a, a friend who said that their relative uh, had Parkinson's, and they would tell their relative uh, about me. I'd done research. I'd done some writing, but I was really at the beginning stages. The audience oh, probably was only about 100 people. And uh, so the person called me. And we had a little discussion. So I was just learning about what it is that impacts people's lives. Well, as it turned out, and my friend had told me, well, this person was very wealthy. They had just bought, I think, what was uh, described as a mansion on a golf course in California. I believe it was Palm Springs. And so this woman was explaining to me, yeah, they had just moved down uh, to their new house. It was a lovely house of, you know, 20,000 square feet, and they were very happy there. But her symptoms were just off the charts. So I'm thinking of two factors, golf course, there's probably Roundup on the golf course, and then who knows what's in the new house. So I asked her, well, tell me, um, when did the symptoms actually surface? When did they emerge? The answer was, oh, well, right, I guess it was about a week after we moved into the new house. Okay, well, to me it's pretty obvious. All right, so the source of the problem is somewhere there. So I asked, uh, well, so uh, is there anything uh, – that in your house now is different from the house that you moved from? And her answer was, oh, yeah, well, uh, it's a little bigger. It's a little nicer, of course. Uh, we have the golf course here. But the other really great thing is we have a new carpet. Um, it's a $30,000 carpet. It's very thick. I just love this carpet. And I suddenly realized that's it. It's the formaldehyde in the carpet. And I said to her, so uh, – it, maybe there's a possibility that formaldehyde is a toxin in that carpet, and that might be affecting your symptoms. And her response was, well, that's, of course, a possibility, but, boy, we love this house. We love this carpet. There's no way that we're going to get rid of the carpet. 
Well, that was really the end of the conversation. I know she felt as though I was not helpful at all. I asked my friend just a couple of months ago, well, what happened to her? Was she able to find a solution to her problem? Unfortunately, she was actually a pretty young woman. She said, no, she died, oh, two or three years after they moved into that house. Now, that's just a story to say there can be lots of sources of these toxins. That was one that was simply pretty obvious. And it was probably not the only source of toxins. It could be the golf course, the Roundup, or who knows what else was a problem. So that was just one factor that was actually at play. So when I say remove continuing exposure to toxins, I'm serious, folks. If you've got neurological problems, you've got to go through everything, everything that you're putting on your body, in your body, that you're near, uh, what you're washing your laundry with, how you're living your life, what foods you're eating, realizing that processed food has a lot of toxins, and clean all of that up. Chances are you're not going to see an immediate improvement. Give your body a little chance. The ninth secret to your uh, ability to recover is, of course, one that I know you're all very familiar with. Give your body what it needs to heal. So your body has to have lots of water. you got to breathe. There is a psychologist that I'd love to have on the show, but I haven't been able to convince her to be a guest yet. It takes me three days to uh, prepare a show, and I'm still working on this one. And she basically has breathing techniques that she teaches her clients when they have tremors. And she tells me, well, all she has to do is to get them to breathe properly and the tremors subside. I don't have the clue on what she's telling her clients yet, but it's a fascinating approach. It obviously works for her clients. Hopefully we'll learn more about that. But the reason it works is people are getting oxygen into their body. Nutritious food, obvious, duh. But let me also say that I've learned from my own naturopath doctor, Dr. Faber, who's worked with a lot of individuals who have neurological challenges, that she's discovered that some people have a folate insensitivity, which means that they are eating the nutritious foods of lettuce and spinach and kale that have a lot of folate substances in them, but because they're allergic to those substances, that's a factor, a major factor in aggravating their symptoms. So to say you ought to do these things, you also want to say, okay, wait a minute, maybe we ought to go back and just make sure we know what we're allergic to. Exercise, everyone knows that's the case. If you're not getting exercise, why? What is it that's impeding your motivation to get out and move your body? It doesn't matter whether a person has been diagnosed with neurological challenges or cancer or MS, doesn't matter. We all in a body have to move our body. The lymph system has to move in order to be able to get rid of the toxins. So exercise is a key to health. There's no question about it. I've got three other substances that are listed here as the ninth secret to recovery. We do not get in the food that we eat enough magnesium. Magnesium is a key ingredient that reduces a lot of tension and tightness in the tissues and in the muscles. So magnesium chloride is what is needed. And what I use every day is a magnesium chloride lotion on my feet, on my legs, on my arms. Uh, And I treat that as just uh, an essential food that I have to have. I can't get it any other way. 
D3 is the sunshine vitamin. We live up here in the Northwest. We don't get enough. If you live in Texas, don't worry about that. But if you don't, D3 is essential. A lot of people with neurological uh, symptoms don't get enough uh, D3. Iodine is another deficient kind of a substance in the food that we eat. So those are sort of three essential items. I've aired a lot of fascinating uh, radio shows with individuals uh, who have discussed lots of different kind of uh, key ingredients that are important. Those are the ones that, that I see for everyone to be really essential. What's the tenth secret to recovery? Well, in my view, if you really want to see a reversal of your symptoms, the key is to ask yourself, what is it that I personally love to do? What is it? And you might have to think back when you were a child because sometimes we get stuck in these routines and we kind of lose track of who we are and what we like. Uh, ask yourself, what is it that gives you the most joy? Did you love when you were a child to act in school plays? Have you acted in the last 20 or 30 years? Well, if you liked to do that when you were a child, maybe that's something that you should start doing today. Go out and act. You say to yourself, well, wait a minute, but I've had these neurological challenges. And I say to you, you know what, if you do what you love to do, these neurological challenges are not going to be a problem. They won't be an issue. Isn't that wonderful? It's like I can't tell you the number of people who, when we discuss, will finally I'll, we'll talk and talk, and then finally they'll realize, well, what I really love to do is make furniture. If they get back to making furniture, symptoms are really not an issue because they're doing what they love to do. That's really the primary key to health and wellness is doing what it is that you truly love to do. Have you stopped hanging out with your friends because you're embarrassed? But that's what you love to do with your life. You love to be with other people. Go do it, and you'll find the symptoms all of a sudden will be nowhere near what they are today. Now, that really concludes my sort of brief preview of the 10 sequence. Of course, there are other keys to recovery, but those are sort of the underlying keys, and I was pretty sure you know about some of them, but not about others. I want to move to my second agenda item, which is to briefly discuss the Jumpstart to Recovery course that starts on July 19th of uh, this month and runs for eight consecutive sessions. And then I want to move to uh, answering the set of questions that uh, you've submitted. So Jumpstart uh, to Recovery online course. Uh, we have eight uh, uh, sessions, and I connect with each of the participants. The idea here is to, to provide support to you and being able to help you sort through what is really at play here in your life. What are the factors that are causing your symptoms? What action steps do you need to take in order to be able to heal the imbalances in your body? Uh, the Jumpstart to Recovery online actual course is uh, 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 94 lectures. I've got all of these lectures that I've recorded and all of these possibilities. What I've discovered in talking with a lot of the people who've been enrolled in that lifetime online Jumpstart to Recovery course is that it's overwhelming. There's so much information. I've got so many therapies that I discuss, and I've experienced them all myself because I'm, I'm just such, such a sucker for new things. 
So I know a lot about all of these therapies. I know a lot about how you can figure out what's causing your symptoms. All by yourself doesn't require any appointments with doctors. And so you can begin to ask your body, okay, let's really sort through what the imbalances are. What are the emotions that are blocking recovery? What are the factors that are obstructing your success with getting well? And we set in motion uh, a course of action. And the whole idea of the course is I give assignments, I give homework each week, I check in with each person. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that people have to give any reports about what they're doing at all. But for participants who do, I will discuss with each person, okay, how is it going? What was the result? Uh, and then when we identify a therapy or two to pursue, the assignment is go out and do it. It doesn't mean you have to pay any money. It could be most of these therapies that I've identified that are really successful don't cost anything. You just have to go do them. And so the assignment will be go out and do that therapy. So each person uh, will be sort of be given a different set of assignments given whatever the uh, uh, symptoms are that they're experiencing and whatever the causes are that are affecting those symptoms. So that's the idea behind Jumpstart to Recovery. The online course that you have access to, you have access to for a lifetime. The eight sessions begin on July the 19th, which is uh, Tuesday at noon Pacific time. All, everything is recorded, so if there's a session you can't participate in, you'll be able to hear the recording. But it's great to connect in because I'll, I'll connect with each participant. There are only 20 uh, participants um, uh, allowed because we, we, I, I can't connect with more than 20 people in any one session. Uh, so maximum enrollment, uh, 20 people. We've already had quite a few people enroll. The total cost of the eight sessions, which includes downloads of the five steps to recovery, my book on thought forms, includes language of recovery, which is a book which enables you to be able to figure out the language that you are using that is not in your best and highest good. All of the mindfulness series downloads, in other words, and also emails uh, that you receive throughout an entire year with a mindfulness challenge each and every week. I think if you add up the cost of getting any one of those separately, it's actually more than just enrolling in the course itself. So the actual cost of the eight-session course, which, again, includes the access to Jumpstart to Recovery online Udemy course, is $248. But I've got... Because you've listened to my dialogue here, uh, the uh, coupon that I want to give to you for a 20% discount off of that cost, which makes it under $200, is the word control, C-O-N-T-R-O-L, control, which means that when you take control of your recovery, then magic begins to happen. So when you go to the Jumpstart to Recovery course website, you'll see a place where it says register here. You click there, and then there's a coupon code you can enter on the shopping cart. Again, that coupon code is control, C-O-N-T-R-O-L. And that coupon code is good through Friday evening. This is uh, Wednesday uh, today. So Friday evening, you've only got a few days. And we'll have to close up enrollments when we hit up our maximum enrollment of 20 people. So if this calls out to you, sign up now before we close out the enrollments. 
And the actual website link is here on the teleseminar page, but that actual address is www.jumpstart, J-U-M-P-S-T-A-R-T, dot parkinsonsrecovery.com. Parkinson's without an apostrophe, and then that's joined together with recovery.com. And if you need the link, of course, you can always email me. I'll be happy to send it out to you. Now, I've got these fascinating questions uh, that I want to now address from people who submitted uh, them to me in writing. So let me move to the third component of our session today. Um, this question comes from uh, Jan in Fair- Fairfield. Uh, I paid for the Jumpstart course with Unimi. Now, that's the one that I was just referring to. So when you sign up for the 2016 Jumpstart to Recovery course with me that starts July 19th, you get free access to that Udemy course, which is a a huge course. And then what Jan says is, Anne got overwhelmed. (laughs) I, I really get that because it took me a year to develop the course. And there are 94 lectures. Some of them are five minutes. Some of them are 15 minutes. There is a ton of textual materials, documents, all sorts of audio recordings. It takes a long time. I mean, we're we're talking a long time to digest all the materials, so it's easy to get overwhelmed. I haven't gone into the website for a long time. Is it still available there? Jan, yes, it's a lifetime access. So it's not the kind of thing uh, that will ever go away to you. It's there for your lifetime. But again, uh, just as a little backup, uh, if you if you really uh, are getting overwhelmed and would like to be able to have some clear direction, sign up for the course with me that starts July 19th uh, for eight consecutive weeks. Um, I, that's really the reason why I'm doing the course this year. It's the only one I'm doing and I feel like, right, I think that's one of the issues. All the information is there, but it's just so much people can't digest or sort through it. I mean, you've got to be able to figure out what action to take. And that's the reason for the course, is to make sure that everybody uh, has a clear direction that they can pursue and are pursuing during the course. Uh, Jan has a second question uh, from uh, from Iowa. What do you think about amino acid therapy? I have one friend who it helped. So amino acid therapy is a therapy that was developed some years ago uh, by Dr. Marty Hines. He's from Minnesota. I've asked him several times to be a guest on the show, but I have not succeeded. It's a rather expensive therapy. It involves uh, blood tests that are taken, uh, depends on uh, when the therapy starts, so one, two, or three times a week. They are testing out the presence of amino acids and then uh, prescribing certain treatments as a result of uh, the findings of those blood tests. I know a lot about it because I talked to the nurse practitioner in his office because I had a person from Europe who was interested in this, and I was wondering if they might be able to do it long distance. The answer is no. You have to do it in person. And, again, it's also uh, a very expensive approach. Uh, And, again, Jan, remember, says she has a friend who would help. Yes, there are people very clearly that I have interviewed and who have reported to me that it has helped them. Let me also say, like any therapy, 
There are also people who I have been in contact with who say it did not help. <laughs> that's, and that's the same with any therapy. So it's not just about amino acid therapy. It's true for pretty much everyone. Some therapies are perfect and some are not, depending on the person's individual situation. Jan also says, I have done intravenous glutathione. And I, had, I used to get results, but not noticeable now. Maybe a more complete supply of all amino acids would be better. So intravenous glutathione usually is something that provides people with some results. It's also a very expensive therapy. People that I've interviewed said, well, they did it for a couple of months. It really worked wonders for them for a couple of months. But paying, I think they said, uh, for this treatment, $100 uh, treatment uh, once a week was too expensive for them. And so they really had to give that up. There is also a radio show that I interviewed with Ross Pelton, who is known as the natural pharmacist. He uh, has uh, landed a substance that is called ME3 that you take through the mouth that is a digestive enzyme which apparently induces the manufacture of glutathione through the digestive system. Isn't that interesting? Listen to his radio show if you're looking for options. Um, that might be something that you might want to uh, consider. If you're not noticing results, it probably means that glutathione uh, is sufficient in your body now, and that's not what is out of balance. And then you're saying here uh, maybe a more complete supply of all amino acids would be better. Well, that certainly is possible. What have you heard about that therapy? So, again, uh, the result uh, that I've got for you is it's expensive. Uh, Marty Hines only provides uh, his products to people who he has certified, so he has uh, uh, only the products uh, that he makes that, that he supports in terms of using this particular therapy. I think other medical professionals uh, have a different approach. Uh, she also says, I am also working on the inside out. Thank you for all your information. You are most welcome, Jan. You are you have been a tremendous resource for many years. Well, that's very much appreciated. <laughs> Thank you, Jan. That's very sweet. So David uh, asked the question, is heart math feedback helpful for Parkinson's? And uh, the the result would be, I think I have to say yes. Uh, there is a video that we took of a presentation uh, at the Parkinson's Recovery Summit in Santa Fe, and it is really about heart math, so you can get a lot of specific. You might already know about heart math, uh, but that particular therapy is recommended as one that really makes a big difference in getting control uh, over stress. And, of course, stress is the key in terms of returning to full health and wellness. So that's a wonderful therapy to uh, pursue. Not a lot of people with Parkinson's symptoms have pursued that as their therapy of choice. Um, but certainly it's one uh, that I think is worth considering. It's a wonderful development. It's been around for quite a few years, so there's extensive evidence out there on its effectiveness in terms of uh, helping the body come back into balance. Willie from Georgia says, how is Botox used in Parkinson's recovery? 
Willie, I had this question a couple of years ago. I did a little research, didn't find anything, and I had to tell the person, well, if you use this, let me know what happened. No response. I did the same thing when I got your question uh, and didn't really see any reports, uh, just just research-wise. Uh, it's certainly not a common therapy that's used. If anything, here's what I would suspect. And really, Willie, I just want you to know this is pure speculation on my part, speaking as a researcher. If it is used by people who have neurological challenges, chances are it's related to the fat tissues. Fat tissues are there to accumulate toxins. So uh, if Botox is going to somehow address the issue of fat tissue, then it may be it's also addressing the issue of toxins. That's the best spin I've got for you on that. I would personally be cautious of that as a therapy because it is an external therapy. I suspect you could pretty well label that as a toxic treatment. It will overwhelm the ability of the, the kidneys to function, the liver to function, the colon to function. Those are all the elimination organs. I would be suspicious of using it just because it's um, a substance that will create somewhat of a toxic overload on the body. Having said all that, Willie, if you're called to pursue that as a therapy, please let us know what happened. Uh, it's amazing how pursuing certain therapies by certain people will work wonders. So if you're called to pursue that, please let us know what happened. Anita from the U.K., United Kingdom, says, Dear Robert, my here-to-throw here, here optimism of recovery is now starting to wane, so am very much looking forward to the recording. And again, this is recording for those of you you just click on the same link as the live event. My question is, what is your opinion of the Vilite 18 810 as an aid to recovery? Now that's Vi V I E L I G H T and then 810 as an aid to recovery. Many thanks as always. Well, Anita that's, again, one of those kinds of things. It looks like it wouldn't do any harm if you're called out to pursue that. Well, gosh, I mean, if your intuition, if your body is telling you why not, well, why not give it a spin and see if it makes a difference? That's a light therapy. Uh, my only thought for you, Anita, about that particular therapy, which I don't have any evidence on at all, is that it is doing something to the body. In other words, it's it's sending some light to the body, and uh, that might actually jumpstart things, at least temporarily. I think uh, that a much more powerful therapy is to take the light that your body is generating, correct that, and send it back to the body. In other words, instead of, instead of using some, some other light source, why not use the light source of your own body? The therapy that does that is known as biontology, at least it's one of those therapies, B-I-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y. The inventor is Johann Boswinkel. Uh, there are a number now of practitioners in the United States. Uh, there's a list of practitioners in a website in Arizona by a practitioner, and I believe that website is biontologyarizona.com. 
So that's something that you might want to consider if you're interested in light therapy. My own sense about the future of medicine is that people will be viewing 200 years from now medicine in 2016 as the Middle Ages because we're using chemicals and we're taking pills and we're doing surgeries, which will always be necessary to a certain extent. But my suspicion is in 200 years, medicine is going to be light therapy and sound therapy. not straight, but rather jiggly, if I could put it that way, it means there's something out of balance there. And so you can alert the body that something is up, and the body then can get to back to work to heal it. So uh, doing the biontology approach, you're supporting the body's ability to heal. You are not doing anything to the body. And again, if you find out anything about that therapy, Anita, it would be marvelous if you would let me know. I can certainly post that on the blog or announce that on one of my programs. Author from Arkansas says the following, how do you switch to nutritional or, he says, herbal curing after having been on the following chemicals? And he's got the dates that he initiated all of these without going through a period of complete non-control of movement, speech, and being dead weight to the person trying to move you. In other words, these medicines are medicines that are helping to make that possible. But it sounds like, author, you're interested in uh, weaning more off of these prescription medications, um, maybe because of side effects or some other reasons, uh, and, and, and finding some other approaches to treatment. So these uh, particular medicines are carbidopa, levodopa, uh, since uh, 4 of 15, Coumadin, which is a blood thinner. Uh, it's for atrial fibrillation, so heart issues. Digoxin, which is also a heart medicine, uh, and for atrial fibrillation. Levothyroxine, uh, one daily for thyroid issues. Try on terine. You can tell, author, I'm not a person who's a pharmacist or a medical doctor. Uh, one day, uh, one daily, uh, there's a Weckl, W-E-L-C-H-O-L, uh, to control diarrhea. Well, so, author, it sounds like the decision that you've made here in the past is to uh, find ways to suppress your symptoms. So you basically have two choices. The first choice is to find ways to suppress the symptoms. The other choice is to say, well, how about instead of suppressing the symptoms, find out what's causing the symptoms so that you can address the causes. And then, then when you do that, you don't have to worry about using all these medicines to suppress the symptoms or control the symptoms. For example, Coumadin is something that is used as a blood thinner. If you have atrial fibrillation, it can create some blood clotting. And so that's just trying to control the symptom that is actually involved. Some people choose both to suppress symptoms and to figure out the cause. But there are 
two different types of medical doctor professionals, and that's obviously what you've been involved with here throughout pretty much your entire life. Uh, the first is the kind of medical doctor that's prescribed the medicines that you list here. The second is a person who is a medical doctor, but they practice something called functional medicine. Functional medicine. Now, there are not that many medical doctors that have this approach. Instead of suppressing symptoms with medicines and addressing the problems with surgeries, what functional medicine doctors do is they step back and they ask the question, what is the cause of these symptoms? What's going on in your body? And then they get to work to address those causes. Now, I have to say that naturopath doctors have had this approach for longer than functional medicine doctors. So it's not a new idea, but it's great to see more medical doctors are pursuing this. This is not popular with standard medicine, I want to say. Functional medical doctors are challenged with dealing with their own colleagues and literally just staying in business. I asked several functional medicine doctors. I actually asked the father of functional medicine, who's from Seattle, to be on the radio show. Unfortunately, through a friend, he reported, no, it was too much exposure for him. He didn't want to be on the show. So I haven't been able to interview a functional medical uh, doctor yet. But they're very similar to the approach that naturopath doctors take. Naturopath doctors don't do diagnoses. They don't care what name you give to the symptoms. They're interested in finding out what is causing the symptoms that you are currently experiencing. Now, it sounds like you want to switch to something other than the medications. I'm guessing that's probably because they are causing a lot of side effects. But it sounds like... Your idea is, okay, instead of using these medicines, what you'll want to do is use some herbs. Well, one of the kinds of things to be aware of is, let's say instead of carbidopa levodopa, you decide what you want to do is to take macuna. Well, macuna is a medicine too. I mean, it's not a prescription medicine. You can get that uh, from Internet websites and other sources, uh, but it's a medicine too. And so you're still working on suppressing the symptoms uh, there are uh, medicines for uh, all kind herbal medicines for heart issues as well, and so that obviously is an approach that you might want to pursue. Uh, but when you begin to reduce these medicines, there can be some serious, serious side effects. For example, reducing digoxin uh, can create uh, heart arrhythmias and uh, can feel uh, pretty scary. So what's my comment for you, author, that I was hoping would be useful? Well, here's what I would say. I would say, why not, instead of focusing your energies on suppressing the symptoms with all these medications, just realize that now that you're taking about seven different prescription medications, the interaction of each of these medications with the other medications is compounding the side effects that you are actually experiencing. So you can look at the side effects of, for example, carbidopa, levodopa. They're a pretty long list of side effects. And then you can look at the side effects list of Coumadin, and that's also, I might add, a pretty long and scary list of side effects. And you can't then say, okay, if I'm just taking those two medicines, I know what the possible side effects are. The fact is that when you are putting carbidopa, levodopa, and 
Coumadin in your body, there are interactions of taking both of those medications in your body that are unique to you. In other words, there are side effects that aren't even documented. And, of course, when we add the other medications, who knows really what's going on? There have never been any studies of any of this. So when I look at the kind of medicines that you are taking, author, and, again, remember I'm just speaking as a researcher, it looks to me like the more uh, the problem that really might merit your focused attention would be the heart issue uh, medications that you're taking. In other words, it sounds like you are having some heart issues. And so what might be causing the heart issues? Well, there are uh, several possibilities, and I'll just float these for you uh, for you to consider. The first major possibility is there is a bacterial infection. Oftentimes, the kind of problems that you are describing, and oftentimes the reason for heart attacks is actually because people have staph infections or strep infections. There's also a pneumonia, uh, chlamydia um, pneumonia, it's called, that suppresses the body's ability to recognize staph and strep. These can cause uh, the kind of problems that I, I suspect you are experiencing. So um, the functional medicine people or the naturopath doctors can uh, do some evaluation of this and then address the cause, which would be if, in fact, this is right and it's just speculation, if the problem winds up being infections. Now, another possibility, because you've also got some atrial fibrillation, is a factor that causes that is oftentimes a compromised gall bladder. So one of the ways to think about what you're up against is not to realize, well, the problem just lies with the heart. Chances are there's another organ system that's at play here that's compromised. My suspicion is your gallbladder probably has an overload of toxins or perhaps bacterial infections, and that needs to be healed. When the gallbladder is healed, uh, I would have my fingers crossed that the atrial fibrillation uh, issues and the heart arrhythmias uh, might be addressed. But again, remember, author, I'm not a medical doctor, just a researcher. These are just all wild speculations. But in summary, uh, this really is a serious challenge for you because reducing any of these medications can create some pretty serious uh, emergent problems with symptoms. I mean, the body all of a sudden rebels. And so I would suggest uh, why not slow that down um, and stop and ask the question, okay, what's really out of balance in your body and begin to support your body's ability to heal? Question from Tom now from Virginia. I was just wondering, Tom says, George Washington University in D.C. is now doing a study on how indoor rock Wall climbing might reduce Parkinson's disease symptoms. Might the reason be related to spinal manipulation of C1 and C2 neck vertebrae as per Noel Batten's analysis and work? And I want to say, Tom, well, you're asking a question, but I think that's a great statement. I think, yeah, that sounds like that's a very possible positive contribution of that particular exercise. Wonderful uh, report that George Washington is actually doing a study to evaluate that. It makes good sense to me that when not only are you getting exercise, but you are manipulating the spine, that you're going to have some benefits of one type or another. 
There are lots of different fascinating exercises that people are doing these days that are resulting in wonderful reversal of symptoms. One of them turns out to be boxing, for those of you that might not have heard about it. Uh, I've tried to get guests on my show that uh, do the boxing, and again, (laughs) without success. Uh, Only about uh, 33% of the people I invite are interested in being on the show. Uh, But uh, rock uh, steady uh, boxing is something that uh, people find to be useful as well. And that's probably for a similar reason. You're you're stretching out and manipulating the spine, which obviously has a a compelling influence on the neurological system. Veronica from Houston says, It seems that much of the information out there tells you that it's up to you to get well and reverse or stop the symptoms. Well, if you have a DAT scan that shows you have a diminished production of dopamine, does that still apply? Well, the question, Veronica, that I would ask you to ask yourself is, all right, it sounds like you might have had some evidence in a DAT scan that there is a diminished production of dopamine. What is causing that? So it's not just that there's a diminished production. Remember, the body can always rejuvenate itself. There's no mystery about the ability of what the body can do to heal. So why isn't the body able to produce sufficient quantities of dopamine naturally? Now, there's lots of different possible explanations. There can be manganese that can basically surround the pituitary gland if the uh, brain uh, control central executive officer is basically barricaded, it's not going to know what to do. It's not going to be able to do its job. So it can be that there are some toxins in the brain that are causing that particular difficulty, and facilitating the release of those toxins will then regenerate the ability of the body to produce dopamine. So just because that's the status now doesn't say a whole lot about what's causing the problem. You know, what what's at play here? Now, again, Veronica, I just give you one wild speculation of what the cause is just as an example. But I would encourage you to say, right, so in the terms of it's up to you to get well, right, it's, up, it's important that you take control because if you are in control, you are, are not acceding control to anyone else, which is what happens when we are traumatized. So, yes, it is important to maintain control. And, again, in the Jumpstart to Recovery course, uh, just for your information, there's a lot of systems that you can access to find out what might be the possible cause of this And just as a clue, I've invented all these wonderful ways and so you can get confirmation of what's really out of balance. You can work with your feet. You can look at your eyes. You can examine your teeth. You can muscle test. There are all these wonderful – the body is giving us the information. We're just not looking. We're just not noticing. So, yeah, you you can look at all that and figure it out for yourself. Veronica continues to say, I hear people have Parkinsonian symptoms and they are able to stop and reverse them. My question is, that's right, Veronica, uh, they succeed in being able to figure out what's causing them and find treatments that reverse them. Did they have Parkinson's or just the symptoms, not necessarily due to lack of uh, dopamine production? Well, 
lots of, as I sort of indicated, Veronica, in my initial discussion, which I hope you were able to hear, uh, there are lots of factors that are causing these neurological symptoms. Um, I think uh, more at the bottom of the list than the top is a lack of dopamine production. In fact, one of the big issues with people is they have too much dopamine, not too little. If you think about it, in, in giving the body dopamine supplements, how can you be sure you're giving the body exactly the amount of dopamine that it actually needs? Well, that's a pretty wild card guess. There are 40 different natural kind of dopamine substances, serotonin, you name it. Okay, huh, how can we keep all of those in balance? They're all interrelated. So it's, it's often the case, and you're, you're framing this as, well, the problem is always a lack of dopamine. Uh, when you see people with dyskinesia, you know, they're moving uh, uh, spastically in all sorts of different directions. Well, the reason for that is they've got too much dopamine in their body. That's what's going on. So I don't think that necessarily the issue is always a lack of dopamine. It can be a factor. And uh, just like people who uh, drink alcohol and people who take some of these uh, marijuana things or other kind of street drugs, as, just because they feel better, when we give, and that's, that basically produces dopamine, whenever we find any way to give our bodies dopamine, we're going to feel better too. It's just what happens. Uh, so dopamine is a critical kind of an issue in our body for lots of different reasons, but there are, again, all of these other hormones in the body. Again, there are 38 or 39 or 40. Dopamine is just one of them. And so realize that when you are pumping dopamine into your body, you're affecting all of the other systems. Paul, uh, and I don't know exactly where Paul is from, he's saying, what is the timeline for the effectiveness of levodopa? Well, I guess that's probably best answered by a medical doctor, um, but as I understand it from all of my interviews, you take levodopa and you should see a result within certainly 30 minutes. A lot of people see it a lot quicker than that. Some people it takes an hour, but it's not the kind of thing that you can take and it's um, you know hours and hours or days and days later. Also, is there a solution for excessive movement as a side effect of the dopamine drugs? And so... Paul, actually, I did some research for you, and there has been uh, an interesting article or an interesting study that gives an approach to solving that. We had an uh, initial discussion of amino acid therapy uh, as a result of another question that was asked. This particular study was published in 2011 in the Internal Journal of General Medicine. It's called Amino Acid management of Parkinson's disease, and uh, basically uh, it's a study that addresses the problem of the side effects of the medications. So why do you have so many side effects of the Parkinson's medications? And as this article so brilliantly points out, the administration of L-DOPA, or if it's not balanced properly, depletes some basic fundamental amino acids. These are L-tyrosine, serotonin, L-tryptophan, sulfur amino acids, which includes glutathione and S-A-E, or 
SEA. That's one of the kinds of things that some people have suggested that can be helpful to take. And epiphrine. Okay, so if it depletes all of those, then it may be that you'll be able to find some adjustment to the side effects that are being caused by the medications by some amino acid therapy. That might be an approach you might want to talk with your doctor about. If they don't do amino acid therapy, then shoot, I would say, well, why not find a naturopath physician or a functional medicine physician that's open to that kind of an approach or perhaps search through Marty Hines' list of authorized practitioners. Perhaps one of those could be of some benefit to you. Myrna from Los Angeles says, is there a therapy that's more effective in helping to recover from Parkinson's disease? So that's kind of a question that I addressed in the very early part of the question. And again, as I noted, I get that pretty much every day. Uh, There's no single therapy that I would list at the top of the list other than the following. Because stress is such a profound factor, being able to find ways to keep your stress under control is a key in being able to keep the symptoms at bay. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are a lot of different approaches to to basically getting stress under control. One of them is to release trauma, address and release traumas that you've experienced. Because when we've had traumas, there are a lot of things that trigger us, a lot of situations that trigger us. And so what you do is you release the trauma, and those situations are no longer high-energy triggers. So it means doing some personal work. Again, Myrna, in the uh, Jumpstart to Recovery online course and the one that we'll be working with here in a couple of weeks, there are a number of different uh, wonderful therapies that can enable the release of these traumas that induce stress and anxiety. Uh, And a lot of them you can do all by yourself. They don't require a practitioner. Some of them it's wonderful to get therapists that can help you with that work as well. But I want to say that what I've tried to do is to find all kinds of systems that you can do all by yourself so that you are in full control. So uh, getting stress under control is probably the one idea that will be one that you can always have in your consciousness, being mindful, being always living in the present moment. That's why I did the whole series of nine mindfulness books with uh, a whole year of mindfulness challenges. That's why I did all that work, is because the research is very clear that when you have a successful mindfulness practice, in other words, you are living in the present, not agonizing over the uh, past or worrying about the future, uh, you are not going to be in a situation where you have high anxiety or high stress. So as that is reduced, your symptoms will also reduce as well. So stress is really where it's at, and realizing that being able to find the triggers is really the key. I would recommend, Myrna, in terms of a therapy that you could pursue, is the following. Uh, Do a journal. I've actually published a little uh, 30-day journal, uh, which is up on Amazon. It's got little pictures that Deborah wrote, so I love this little journal. It's a daily journal where you make notes of lots of different kinds of questions, but it's only for 30 days. 
And the whole idea is you are beginning to be more cognizant of what it is that's stressing you out. What's the situation that stresses you out and creates anxiety? So you begin to take a journal and you begin to report on, okay, what, what, what was it that made you so anxious? Was it something you saw, something you heard, something you thought about? And so you make a report in the journal of everything that triggered you, in other words, that created high anxiety. And then after 30 days, you can look at all those reports, and you, Myrna, will see a common theme. There is something that's common about everything that's created that stress. Once you know what that is, you can set the intention to heal that problem. We carry a lot of these kinds of issues around year after year after year without even recognizing that they are having a profound impact on our stress levels. So that's some work you can do that I think you will find will produce some wonderful insights on really what's causing the stress that you are experiencing. Myrna, again, from Los Angeles, also has another question, and it says, is there a therapy that's more effective? Oh, that's the same question. (laughs) Okay, we've already answered that. Great. And, Myrna, you also ask, has anyone utilized amino acid therapy for PD? I hope you you heard my answer earlier about amino acid therapy. The answer is yes. People have found wonderful results, and people have also found no results. So we have, like any therapy, results that tend to be scattered all over the place. This um, uh, question comes from L, and it is, is it true that the FDA or the American Medical Association would rather not find or approve a cure? Well, I have to say, L, I've never really heard that assertion at all. Uh, you've heard my own uh, comments about the whole idea of curing anything, to me, is anathema. I really uh, have a distaste for whenever I hear anybody using the word cure, I want to listen to my body. And so uh, as far as I'm concerned, the whole chase after a cure is uh, probably uh, simply giving people false hope. What we want to do is to find out what's out of balance in the body, what's causing the problem, and then addressing that. It has nothing to do with the cure. I have no idea what the FDA and AMA really are doing with regard to this. Uh, so I'll have to defer the wisdom of that to somebody else who knows more about their inner workings. Uh, Larry from San Diego says, can Parkinson's remain dormant for the life of the person or what looks like remission? Well, when you're using the word Parkinson's, Larry, I really don't know what that means. So I don't know what the condition really would be. Uh, if, for example, by Parkinson's, you're referring to the symptoms and the symptoms are being caused by toxic overload, then it's not going to remain dormant. If there are a lot of toxins in uh, that the person has been exposed to, the body sends those toxins to the extremities. So what you'll see is uh, there will be spots on the hands or marks of some kind uh, on the feet. Uh, It also, by the way, sends the toxins to the head. Now, you'll think, but wait a minute, isn't the head a critical uh, organ or component of the body? And the answer is, well, not according to the body. The body wants to keep you alive and keep you surviving. And so what it's going to do is it's going to keep those toxins away from the heart and the lungs, and it's going to send them out to the extremities. So 
if you if you're thinking of Parkinson's as toxins, which again is only one of about 30 or 40 different causes, then it's it's not it's dormant only in the sense that it sent that out to the extremity so that it could do no great harm. Now it's still there. Uh, if you're thinking of Parkinson's as bacterial infections, yes, the body can actually mutate bacterial infections so that they're still there, but they're not causing serious problems. We had some uh, initial discussion about issues in hearts uh, for an individual, uh, and that can be because of staph or strep. What the body has probably done uh, with those infections, if that's the case for this person, is that they've mutated those so that they can't do too much harm. Now, they're still there. I wouldn't call them dormant. They're still alive. But by dormant, it means, well, they're just still. They're kind of dead uh, and ready to be awakened. Uh, But these infections are still live beings with consciousness. So what I just want to say, Larry, is when you use the word Parkinson's, uh, I don't know exactly what that means. I do know uh, from just my own observations and from some of the research evidence that these neurological challenges are becoming far, far more prevalent in our society today. More and more young people, even teenagers, are having neurological difficulties. I see a lot of young people shaking these days. Now, why is that? So that's not dormant. Uh, That's a problem that's in their face. Now, lots of young people just figure, well, it's just a temporary problem, and they may be right. It may be the reason they have the shaking issue when they're just 21 is that they like to smoke marijuana, and they're getting street marijuana. In Washington, there are sources of legal marijuana that have been tested for toxins. But if they've gotten some kind of street drug or a marijuana drug that has toxins, it could be the reason they're having these symptoms is because they've actually been doing something pleasurable, they thought, but they were actually putting toxins into their body. So, yes, the body has this uh, amazing ability to survive. And um, in terms of the degradation of the neural networks, it is the case uh, that the myelin sheaths can slowly deteriorate. That's a little fatty tissue around the neurons. The neurons are actually very uh, juicy. And so it can be that it looks like it's dormant, but it's actually slowly becoming thinner and thinner over a period of a lifetime. And so that's not dormant. It's not affecting the symptoms, but it's still at play. It's still working. So those myelin sheaths are continuing to thin. Um, If Parkinson's uh, difficulties are due to calcium deposits, which is also a possibility, then it's not dormant, those those Calcium deposits continue to accumulate in those neural networks. And uh, so it looks as though it's not creating symptomatic problems, but it actually is. So usually a body only begins to begin to scream when these problems become uh, particularly problematic. So I see everything is basically adjusted. (coughs) The body is always continuing to uh, stay in balance. And so it's making all sorts of adjustments all the time. To think that uh, we have any sense of what the body needs to do to stay alive, I think, is a misnomer. I don't think anybody has any idea how the body does it. It's really a miracle. Uh, Larry also asked, is there a way to know the difference between tremors from Parkinson's and tremors from the medications? (laughs) Well, 
The only way that I know was listening to a person in our Parkinson's recovery support group who bit the bullet and decided she was going to go off all of her medications. Uh, she's been working with uh, actually my, my doctor, I have to say, naturopath doctor, Dr. Faber, who referred her and has been working in collaboration with a Dr. UNESCO in New York City. Now, Dr. New UNESCO has this approach where apparently he has people go off all their medications and gives them a powder, a formula that contains amino acids and uh, some hormones, I guess, and also some lacuna and I don't know what else. And apparently this person basically uh, said she was very scared to pursue this therapy because the last time she stopped taking her medication, she basically was in the intensive care for three days, uh, which is, again, uh, uh, an important uh, signal to everybody who's thinking about stopping your medications. Don't do it. You don't want to wind up in intensive care. But she decided, well, this is a medical doctor. He's helped a lot of other people. I'll go ahead and take a risk. So she stopped her medicines, uh, started taking whatever that powder is that she gave her, that that, that uh, set of uh, medicines. And uh, she said that although it was pretty scary in the beginning, uh, she was uh, successful in literally just stopping all the medicines. And the one report that she gave Larry about this was, well, guess what? Uh, now I know the difference between the side effects of the medications and what really has been the tremors. That, so her report was finally she could you know was able to listen to her body and understand what her body was telling her rather than what the side effects of the medications were. So Larry, that's my one answer that I've heard um, is, is is basically if you do come off of all the medications, then you will be able to tell the difference. I don't know of any other way you would be able to do that. And the wonderful news, too, is that uh, there is this technology uh, that enables people to do that in working with, uh, you know, people who are qualified to be able to help support that kind of decision. And then Larry also has, is it possible to tell how long Parkinson's has been dormant in the body before symptoms appear? And there is, boy, that's an interesting question. But again, the word Parkinson's, the answer really would depend on what it means. In other words, what what is the factor that's causing the problem? Uh, so it's a little hard to be able to say one way or, or another what the time frame might be. I think the timeline between exposure to a toxin and neurological problems can be very, very short. The body sometimes, if it's already overloaded with toxins, it just cannot process out re-exposure to something that's pretty significant. So it can be pretty quick, pretty instant. Uh, in terms of uh, dopamine production, yeah, that can wither away slowly, slowly, Be again, because of toxins, because of trauma. If a person is continuously under stress, uh, they're going to overload their body's ability to function um, so a lot of people think, well, how come I don't have enough dopamine? Well, if you're continuously under stress, you're pumping adrenaline through your body 24-7, and there's no opportunity for dopamine to be produced. The body doesn't have the energy or the time to be able to relax, to chill out, to have a little vacation, and to produce the dopamine. All the resources have to be spent in producing adrenaline and cortisol and to get the body moving. Uh, has a t it takes a terrible toll on the body. So if you're always in overdrive, if you're always controlling your entire world, then the whole system is going to be basically struggling. There's no question about it. So now 
I've gone through the list of questions that I present, uh, printed out and had a chance to kind of look at. I'm going to now look at the uh, table, and we've got a couple of more that were submitted. Uh, so Adam from Sebastopol says, what about medical marijuana for tremors? So Adam, um, quite a few uh, people have told me that that is one kind of a treatment that makes a difference to them. Uh, and they use it religiously. Uh, so it's obviously an option that you might want to consider. Uh, the issue, of course, with marijuana is it puts you into an altered state, and it tends to numb out your mental acuity. Uh, and so it, there are side effects. Of course, if you uh, have a job, it's not a good idea to be uh, doing the medical marijuana when you're trying to work. There are all kinds of consequences to that. There may be consequences when you're driving. So it may be that, yeah, you can use the medical marijuana, but only in situations where you're uh, safely nested at home. So, yes, that can uh, provide some benefits. Smoking actually itself, research shows, can provide some relief. Drinking green tea and even caffeinated tea, like black tea, uh, research evidence indicates that that can make a difference. There is a radio show that I interviewed with Richard Melvin, uh, about three months ago. Be sure to check that out. He's got uh, notes at the bottom in his comments about the show. He goes through all the research that shows the kind of things that will address issues with tremors. And, of course, I've got my little book, uh, Treatments for Tremors, that you might have already seen. So medical marijuana is uh, an option. The option that I would recommend that you consider is not marijuana, but rather CBD. Now, that's extracted from a plant that's either a marijuana plant or the hemp plant. Now, what's great about using the hemp plant to extract the CBD, which is what gives you the medical benefit, is it's legal in all states. You don't have to go through the process of getting some certificate from a medical professional and then sending that to the medical authorities, and then they're tracking you, et cetera, et cetera. The CBD that has been extracted from the hemp plant is legal. And so uh, what happens is they extract it from the hemp, and then they also add that extraction to hemp oil. So it's not marijuana. It doesn't make you high. It doesn't make you sleepy. So if there's anything, I would suggest, Adam, why not, uh, if you're thinking of the marijuana as an option, why not, First of all, explore the possibility of CBD. So listen to that radio uh, show um, on the radio show page. If you don't know where that is, just go to the main website, parkinsonsrecovery.com, and you'll see there's a link there to the radio show page. So click on that, and uh, I believe I've got that. Try, try to list that at the top so that... Uh, people can easily find it because we've had so many questions about that. So that's an interview. There's a link to a page there on the radio show page to a summary of the research that I was able to collect together on using CBD as a treatment for Parkinson's symptoms. And actually, the research is very encouraging. The initial studies, uh, not done in the United States, but in, in uh, I believe Israel, uh, really were very exciting uh, because it did indicate uh, quite a bit of 
improvement uh, for the subjects that were studied. Uh, the one revelation from that research is you have to use a pretty good concentration of the CBD. So 300 milligrams, the subjects who had that, they showed wonderful relief. People who had less than that, like 75 milligrams, they didn't show any result at all. So look at the research. Uh, look at the summary that I've got. Listen to the radio show. See if that might be an option you might want to consider. And, of course, again, I want to say, Adam, that uh, people that I've interviewed uh, swear by uh, the use of medical marijuana as uh, an option. So, again, you might want to consider that as well. And David uh, from Canada says the following. Hello. What effect does sugar have to those with Parkinson's symptoms? Whoa, what a great question. David. It's huge, huge. Sugar is one of the most prevalent toxins ever. Sugar is in processed foods. Uh, sugar really is the devil of all devils when it comes to the neurological uh, system. So in terms of sugar, I would recommend if, since you asked the question, you might be thinking, well, gosh, I, I should stop eating sugar. That's a little tough for those of us that are uh, have a sweet tooth. There are so many wonderful natural options to sugar out there these days. There is also uh, something called uh, sugar that's extracted from coconut, of all things, which is really quite delicious. There's coconut flour that you can use and coconut sugar that you can use to make yummy foods with instead of some of the genetically modified foods. There are sugar substitutes that you can also use, that also also have uh, medicinal benefits. Uh, so I would encourage everyone listening to the program today to just put sugar at the top of the list in terms of toxins. We've talked a lot about getting rid of toxins in your life. I'm telling you right now, sugar is where it is at. It creates a nightmare in your body. There's not such a, a good thing as cane sugar at all. Yes, your brain does need sugar to function. Mine does too. But remember, we get wonderful natural sugar in the juices that we ingest and, of course, in some of the other foods that we eat as a natural course of living. So it's not as if if you stop eating the candies or the other kinds of sugars uh, that you're going to be deficient in the sugar that your brain needs. You won't. So thanks for asking that question because, again, I can't tell you how important that is and what a challenge it really is for so many of us who have sweet tooths to be able to figure out solutions to being able to satisfy that need. One radio show I would recommend to everyone that you consider is a show that I uh, interviewed with Bruce Fife. He's a naturopath doctor. He's written about six or eight books on, on cooking with coconut flour and using natural sugars. When I say natural sugars, I'm not talking about raw sugar. I'm so, I, I suppose I should say sugar substitutes. Making things like brownies and cookies and breakfast breads and all kind of sweet goods that uh, Deborah and I have made that are really, really good. I mean, it's worth getting some of his books. It's worth listening to his radio show. If you're on a challenge of trying to to, to eliminate sugar, then I think his particular path is really a wonderful one to pursue. I mean, get on the board with uh, get on board with uh, 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 cooking with coconut flour and, and and coconut oil, which has these incredible benefits in itself, and then using these sugar substitutes. 
Let me check one more time here to see if we have, we uh, believe. And so uh, what I want to say is those are the 10 secrets um, that I've identified over 12 years of researching the factors that affect Parkinson's disease. Uh, I want to invite each of you who are connecting in today to uh, join us in our course uh, where we're going to provide Support, and I do mean all the support that you're going to need in order to be able to sort through the issues that you currently confront. There are no simple solutions to this. There is no one program that will succeed for everyone. This is what I know to be true. But I do know that when you take control over your own recovery program, when you figure out what it is that's really going on, both physically as well as emotionally and clear all of that out, you'll be amazed at how you can reclaim full power, health, and wellness. It happens. And, of course, being able to know that your thoughts are the key, knowing that recovery is happening for many, many people today, much more so than 12 years ago. So many more people are realizing that, yes, it is possible to heal. It is possible to get well. Thoughts are really where it is at, ladies and gentlemen. So realize that once you address that as an issue, you'll be able to solidly steer a steady course on the road to recovery. And again, for those of you that might have just joined me in the presentation today, don't forget if you're interested in joining our course, which has a limited enrollment of 20 participants, be sure when you get on the shopping cart to enter the coupon code word control, C-O-N-T-R-O-L, to claim uh, your immediate 20% discount so that that eight-session course with a lifetime access to Jumpstart to Recovery is going to cost less than $200. The idea is for you to get all the support that you need uh, but not have to pay all kind of money being able to get others to fix you. You're the one that can figure it out for yourself. And uh, just as a final comment, the whole purpose of the course is not to promote any particular therapy. As many of you who know me uh, realize, the, I do know about a lot of these therapies, and what I emphasize are the therapies that you do on your own that are absolutely free. And that's what we'll be working with in the course is things that you can do for yourself every day as a matter of habit to be able to find a reversal of your symptoms. So the idea is not to somehow sell people on some expensive kind of a program. That's not what I'm about. I'm about being able to support the recovery of a critical body of individuals who can come on to my radio show, tell their story, and so we'll have more and more and more people who are telling their stories about what they did, what they figured out, how they were able to succeed in reversing their symptoms. And of course, in some cases, it may be that all of the symptoms have not been resolved. The body is still talking with you, but you have reclaimed your life, your full power, and you are leading a marvelous and a wonderful life day in and day out. So that's my story of the 10 secrets uh, that I have discovered that really affect what it is that uh, makes a difference to people who are, in fact, succeeding on their road to recovery and I must say to all of you, that is indeed what is happening here on the beautiful shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, 
all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact that you have joined together in this program today, that with your own intention, you indeed are on the road to recovery. 